0: Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse that separates the waters, and there was an expanse that we call the sky. God said, let there be land and sea, and there was land and sea. God said, let there be sun and moon and stars, let there be plants and vegetation. God said, let there be animals that fly through the air and animals that swim in the waters. God said, let there be animals that walk along the ground. God said, let us make man in our image. And man was made in the image of God. Do you know what the operative word in all of creation is? Said. Everything that exists, exists because God spoke it into being. The universe, the world, and all of creation was made at the Word of God. It's Genesis 1. Then we get to Genesis 3. Satan comes into the garden, and he twists God's Word. Sin and death enter the world. And with the Within the first three chapters of the Bible, we see that the entire earth, the entire world, was created and corrupted with words. And then we try to convince ourselves that those words aren't that important. For years, my dad has said, irregardless. My mother and I have corrected him, as we should, because irregardless is not a word. But then the wonderful people who were in charge of officially making words decided enough people were saying it, they needed to make it a word. And so now my dad says, I was never wrong. I was just an early adopter. (laughs) See, apparently, the rule in life, see, normally the rule is if you do something that's wrong, you're wrong. And if you continue to do the thing that is wrong, you continue to be wrong. But apparently, the rule with language is if you do something that's wrong, but you do it long enough, and you get enough other people to be wrong with you, you become right. Awesome. And so, the wonderful people who are in charge of words make irregardless a word, and they define it as being regardless. And here's why that puts a B in my bonnet. In the English language, the prefix IR means not. Something is irregular, it is not regular. If something is irrelevant, it is not relevant. But in the wonderful joy that is the smorgasbord of the English language, the word not not regardless means regardless. You know, because logic. See, sometimes when we misuse words, it can be amusing. Sometimes when we misuse them, it's confusing. And sometimes it's painful. See, we like to diminish the significance of words. It's no big deal. They're just words. Who cares? Stop worrying so much about it. But the more we downplay the significance of our words and speech, the easier it is for us to be careless with them, which is something that the Bible warns us about over and over again. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens, up, who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17.27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. James 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways. Amen? And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. James says, if you can figure out how to control your tongue, you can control every aspect of your life. You've got this thing down because that is the hardest thing to keep under control. So many of our problems and struggles and the conflicts we endure in this life begin with the words that come out of our mouth. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but rather what comes out of the mouth that defiles us. We are, defi- we are made unclean by the things that we speak. Or, perhaps the most, one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That should keep us up at night. But Jesus is saying, is that one day you and I are gonna stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we are going to give an account for every careless thing we say. Every, I didn't mean anything by it, I was just saying, I was just joking, I was playing around, it's nope. Everything we say, we get to answer to Jesus for. So maybe rather than justifying and downplaying how it's okay for us to allow our emotions and feelings to control the words that come out of our mouth, it's okay that I said those things when I was angry. It's not my fault I was angry. They made me angry. Okay, Adam in the garden, didn't work for him, not gonna work for you. Maybe instead of trying to diminish the significance of our words, we should stop and ask ourselves, is this criticism, is this comment, is this negative thing, is this thing that I'm going to say, is this worth standing in front of Jesus and having to explain? Could you think any of the excuses that we use for ourselves are going to work on him? We will stand before Jesus and give an account for every careless word we speak and if we're being honest these five being honest most of them are careless words have power they're important they have meaning and impact on people's lives words can be used to build up and words can be used to tear down proverbs 18:21 says life and death are in the power of the tongue john 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was God, He was with Him in the beginning, and through Him all things were made without Him. Nothing was made that has been made. In Him was the light, and that light was the life of men, the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. You know what what John's telling us about the Word? You know what that is? Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God responsible for all creation is Jesus. He is the Word. So how can we as His followers be flippant with ours? Our speech is so incredibly important, which is why when Paul lists for us five key areas that we set an example in our pursuit of Jesus, that the first item that he lists is our speech. We are called to influence the world with the gospel, to set an example to help others know and grow in Jesus. And so in our series, Be an Example, we are studying and camping out in 1 Timothy 4.12. Six weeks, one verse. That's how important this verse is, where Paul is teaching us how to be an example for Jesus how to be a light that shines in the darkness, how to be different and live different from the world around us that people might see Jesus in us and through us. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is summarized in these two commands. Jesus says everything that you see, the entirety of the law, is fulfilled if you get these two things right. That's how important this law is. 1 Timothy 4.12 is the summary of the Christian life. We get this right, that we can be confident that we are faithfully following and pursuing Jesus in our lives. This is the summary. All scripture is important. All Scripture is valuable as it is the Word of God, but there are some verses that are worthy of special attention, and this is one of them. So much so that this is one of those verses that we should memorize. Inscribe it on your heart. Recite it to yourself every morning before you get out of bed so that this is never far from your mind. First Timothy 4.12. But no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Of all of the elements of the Christian life, our speech tends to be the most neglected. So we live in a society that is consumed by our entitlement to share whatever we're thinking or feeling and to offer up our opinions on everything so much so that we do so without ever considering how sharing those thoughts and opinions might impact or harm the people around us. And one of the most disheartening things for me is seeing Christians who love Jesus and are supposed to honor and follow the example of Jesus, who when confronted with the impact of their careless opinions and thoughts being shared, respond with dismissal, justification, or blatant apathy. Well, I don't care how you feel. It's none of my business. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I'm going to say what's on my mind. I'm going to say what's on my heart because it's more important to me to have the freedom to express my ignorant, myopic point of view than it is to consider how that ignorant, myopic point of view might cause you harm. And for some reason, We treat this character trait like it's something worthy of praise. Look at how strong and confident they are to speak like that, to think like that. They're not worried about what anybody else is thinking about them. They're not worried about how anybody else feels. Right? Because I'm just, this is just who I am. Right? I'm speaking my mind. I call it like I see it. I tell it like it is. I'm just being honest. I'm just keeping it real. As if that is an excuse to be wildly inconsiderate and insensitive to the people around us. So, so many things that we say to try to justify diminishing the significance of our words so that we don't have to think about them or consider other people when we say them. Words have power. Words have meaning. And words can be very impactful in people's lives. Our love for Jesus, or at times lack thereof, will be made visible in how we talk to and how we talk about other people, which includes the consideration that we offer for people who have a different experience, different background, or different point of view than we do. When we are careless with our words, we dishonor Jesus. When we are careless with our words, we disobey Jesus. When we are careless with our words, we shame the reputation of Jesus. When we are careless with our words, we reveal the cruelty and depravity that dwells in our hearts. Luke chapter 6 verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in your heart will be revealed by the words that come out of your mouth. We like to disassociate the two. Right? Here's who I am. I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I'm a thoughtful, considerate person. I care about people. I'm good. And these are my words, and they're over here. And you know what? That's not always a reflection of that, but that's okay. Those are just my words. They don't mean anything. What Jesus says is no. <laughs> it's quite the opposite of that. What's coming out of your mouth, that's the truth. That is what is in your heart. That is the overflow of who you are. What is coming out of your mouth, This is not to say we don't have bad days, but what is regularly and consistently coming out of our mouths, that is our true self, that our words are the mirror that reflect to us and allow us to see the reality of who we really are. That's a mirror I don't like to look in, especially when I'm on 501, because I have an image of myself how I see myself, what I believe about myself, what I hold to be true of myself and my nature and how I'm such a wonderful, caring person. And I look at that, and then I look at the things that come out of my mouth, and I go, well, these two people don't look the same. Yeah, what Jesus says is this one's an illusion and self-deception. This is truth. What is in your heart, the overflow of your heart, is what comes out of your mouth. Hold on. It's kind of a simplification, don't you think? I mean, after all, we are called to speak truth. Yes, we are. And just saying, truth hurts. Yeah, it can. And that's not my fault. Not always, but sometimes. Truth is not an excuse for carelessness. The Bible doesn't say, if you have the truth, you can present it however you want. Just wield it like a sledgehammer, bash people over the head with it, do whatever, because if you have the truth, you're right, and it doesn't matter what the other person thinks so long as you're giving them the truth. That's the gracious thing to do. Just punch them with it, because if you've got the truth, you've got the right to be an insensitive, inconsiderate jerk face. I don't know that jerk faces shows up in the Bible, but... What the Bible says is when you speak the truth, you do it in love. And being an example in our speech means that we hold truth and love as equal value in everything that we express. That we must hold these two together as of the same importance. Where there is love, but not truth, we offer empty affirmation makes the other person feel good, but it does no benefit to them. In fact, it typically will do them harm. Truth without love is cruelty. You're giving people information that they need, but in a way that they cannot receive it. We are called to balance truth and love and to keep them held together in all expression. Because when we are, even if we have both, if we are heavy and strong on love but weak on truth, we become dismissive of sin. And if we're really strong on truth but really weak on love, we become self-righteous and legalistic, both of which are offensive to God. Now, setting an example in our speech means that everything that we say is both truth and love held together in perfect harmony. That sometimes, the harder the truth is to accept, the more we cover and saturate that truth with the love that they need to have in order to receive and understand it. Because it must always be held together. See, there is perhaps nothing in the Christian life that prevents us from being an example for Jesus more than our speech. Because when we speak, we rarely consider the impact that our speaking has. Because we address it, right? We have our our gospel over here, Jesus is over here, and then we have everything else that we talk about. And we think that there's a compartment that exists between them. So when I talk about this, this is important. When I talk about this, it's not important. That's the thing. People don't work that way. What you say over here affects how people view you over here. Aristotle theorized that there were three elements to effective communication logos, pathos, and ethos. A speaker's logos was their appeal to the mind. It's the content of their message, literally, it's their words. Their pathos was their appeal to the heart. It's the passion, the energy with which they communicate, it's any emotional content that they include that stirs up feelings. The ethos was their credibility and the rapport with the audience. Ethos was earned primarily through relationship and reputation. Of the three, Aristotle rightly believed that ethos was the most important. Because it does not matter how great what you have to say is if no one wants to hear you say it. Everything that we say. Affects whether or not people want to listen to us in the little moments, in the small times, over issues that really aren't important. We are either building or sacrificing our credibility that determines whether or not people want to turn the volume of our words up or mute them. Remember, when I was in Bible college, we had a chapel service every Tuesday and Thursday morning. A little worship. A little message typically was one of the professors or a guest speaker that they would bring in. For one chapel service, sit next to a friend of mine, and the, the school had brought in a guest speaker who was a pastor and spoke at a bunch of conferences and stuff. I didn't know the guy, I'd never heard of him before, just some random pastor. And he showed up actually the night before, and the night before we'd had a, a prayer night, in which, you know, being a bunch of Bible nerds, everybody decides that they're going to get up and start confessing <laughs> their problem with pride. So he comes to that, he hears a bunch of students confessing their pride problem and he decides rather than speaking about what he was assigned, he was going to address our pride problem that existed on campus. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we had a chapel sermon. Every semester, for every year of college. I still consider that the worst message I heard while I was there. Whereas my friend sitting next to me considers it one of the best. Which makes you wonder, how do two people sitting right next to each other who agree on most everything, because he's like a brother to me, have such a different reaction? We heard the same words. We heard them delivered in the exact same way at the exact same moment. So why was he convicted and I annoyed? He'd heard the guy speak before. He knew the guy's reputation. He respected. The difference between our reaction was that the speaker had no ethos with me and had it with my friend. Because I'm sitting there going, who are you? You've been on our campus for 11 minutes. What qualifies you and gives you the right to address a campus-wide culture that we have with a pride problem? And the worst part is, when you get bothered by the fact that someone talks about pride, everybody else's reaction is, well, it sounds like he was talking to you. Which just made me mad. Because it's like, who doesn't have a pride problem? Give me a break. (laughs) Obviously, it's the easiest thing to confess because we all have it. That's the power of ethos. It changes how people hear everything you have to say. Which is why Paul emphasizes... Setting an example for Jesus, what he's teaching us to do by being an example in our speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity is he's teaching us to live and speak in a way that builds that ethos, that builds that credibility with people so that when we talk about Jesus, they're a lot more interested in what we have to say. Paul is teaching us how to be more effective as servants for Jesus. So how do we set an example One of the things that never ceases to amuse me is that as Christians, we have the gospel. We've received the grace and love of God. We are aware of what Jesus has done for us, that he left the comfort and glory of heaven to come to earth, that he died on a cross in our place, taking our sin and the punishment that we deserve upon his shoulders out of his great love for us to give us new life that we could be with him forever. As Christians, we understand this world is broken, and there's going to be pain and struggle and suffering in it, but it is super temporary, and after that, when we move to the other veil on the other side of time, we get to spend eternity in joy and wonder and glory. And so what befuddles my mind is how we as Christians who have the gospel, who have this incredible joy and love, still complain about the same things the world does. How are we still talking about the same things that they are? Expressing the same negativity, the same criticalness when we have this amazing, boundless love and joy, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and so I find myself wondering, where's the joy of Jesus when it's coming out of our mouths? Everything that we say should be saturated in the joy of the gospel, knowing the eternity that has been set for us. So when we speak, Is the gospel that dwells in our hearts made evident? Or do we sound just like everybody else? Setting an example in our speech is actually more about what we don't say, where we don't speak. See, the Bible says, As followers of Jesus, there are certain things we don't talk about. We don't engage in filthy, unwholesome discussions. We don't talk about inappropriate things. We don't slander. We don't gossip, even if we're dressing it up and calling it a prayer request. If it's not your sin to confess, it doesn't matter if you're asking for prayer for it. still gossip. We don't complain because godliness with contentment is great gain. We're not living critically and negatively and always focusing on the bad because we have a hope and a joy in Jesus. We don't engage in needless debates and arguments. Oh, come on. I love debating people. I love arguing with people about all kinds of stupid stuff. It's so fun. What better way to spend a Saturday than arguing about stupid stuff? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish Ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with, here's a novel idea, gentleness. As God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. <coughs> Sorry, Facebook. had something in my throat. You have to wonder, if you took foolish, ignorant controversies off of social media, what content is left? I think there's two things. Weird pictures of people's food and creepy targeted ads that make you question your privacy. Not sure there's much else. But God tells us, do not engage in foolish, ignorant controversies. Don't comment on them. Don't post about them. Don't share them to get a lively discussion going. Don't have conversations over them. If somebody, if a group of people are talking about it and you're there, just don't speak. If somebody brings you into the conversation, tries to talk to you about it, politely change the subject. Well, hold on. I think that's a really cool thing. I like to talk about that. I'm passionate about that. It's a really fun thing for me. Have nothing to do with foolish controversies. Okay, okay, but you know what? It's really important. you got to understand, this affects our taxes. This affects our freedoms. So if we give up this ground, then they're just going to take another step and another step, and soon we're going to be communists. So we we got to fight this here. Have nothing to do with them. Not a lot of ambiguity in the word nothing. Okay, fine. But what makes it a foolish controversy then? Question one, is this an issue that people have differing opinions on that they are passionate enough about to argue and fight over? If the answer is yes, it's a controversy. But not all controversies are foolish. Question two, is it necessary to engage this subject to defend the gospel or proclaim Jesus? Question three, is this an issue of eternal significance? And if the answer to both of those questions is not yes, it's probably a foolish controversy. I'm not saying it's not meaningful. I'm not saying it's not impactful. I'm not saying we don't have passionate points of view. I'm saying you can have a passionate point of view and keep your mouth shut. It is not worth sacrificing our credibility for the greater mission that we have been given to preach the gospel and to tell people about Jesus, to argue and bicker over things that will not last beyond this temporary broken world. So if the issue doesn't make it past this life, do not waste your ethos arguing and debating over it because it's not worth it. Well, you can't tell me what to say. This is America. We have the freedom of speech. Absolutely. And without question. I'm not saying you don't have the right. I'm saying just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Following Jesus is a call to willfully sacrifice personal rights and freedoms for the glory of God and the good of others. And being an example for Jesus, it's not about what you can get away with or what you're allowed to do. It's about living your life in a way that draws people to Jesus and shows people the love of Jesus. And that has to take precedent. So before we speak, before we engage in controversies or arguments that don't need to be had, before we address things, there are several questions that we can ask. Think of them like a checklist to determine whether or not you actually need to open your mouth. One, is it true? Is what I'm about to say true? Two, does saying it honor God? Three, and this is an important one, am I the right person to say it? Four, does it need to be said at all? Five, is this the right time? Is there a more loving way to express this? Is what I'm expressing beneficial, encouragement, or for the other person's good? And if we cannot confidently answer all of those questions, it may be that we don't need to speak on that particular issue. We don't talk about that. We don't engage in all these arguments and debates. There's not a lot of talking left to do. Yeah which is why Proverbs says, even the fool seems wise when he shuts his mouth. Saying less is not a bad thing because it makes what we do have to say that much more impactful. Too often, we become careless with our words and we allow what we have to say about things that don't matter get in the way of what Jesus has called us to do. Don't let your logos your words get in the way of your ethos, your credibility. That's what we don't do. How about what we are called to do? Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be gracious. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5:4. let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, but instead thanksgiving. We are called to be different from the world around us and there's no place where that difference becomes more evident than in how we speak. And so we set an example, we show the world that we are different from them because of Jesus in how we speak to them, how we speak about them, and how we speak to each other when we speak the truth in love and we make special care when we're saying hard truths to be extra loving about it, when we speak graciously and positively, when we build people up and encourage them and lift them up and spur them on, we demonstrate that there's something different in us. As followers of Jesus, we should be building up, not tearing down not looking for the flaws in everybody else. What's that guy's problem? What's they messed, what are they messed up? About? Why? So when you think about what comes out of our mouths and that that is a reflection of our hearts, ask yourself, what's the most common thing that's coming out of my mouth? When I walk up to talk to somebody, does their face light up because they're excited to hear what I have to say? And they're like, oh, another one of this. What you say is so incredibly powerful. It is so incredibly impactful. And you can do so much good for the glory of God with it if you will use your words for the glory of Jesus, if you will focus all that you say and do to grow through the channel of his love and grace. You can transform people's lives. I was suicidal for years. Because of things that people said to me. And the reason I didn't end my life was because of what other people said to me. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. What are you going to do with yours? You have an unbelievable opportunity to be an example. Because God has called us all to be missionaries in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, when you're at the grocery store, everywhere you go. You may be the only light that shines in that darkness. So shine it. Let people see the joy of the gospel and how you speak. It's our words, they matter. And so the question, the challenge that I want to leave you with is how can I be a better example for Jesus with the things that I say? How can I bring him glory with the words that come out of my mouth? Because as James tells us, if we get this thing right, We become perfect. So let's become an example for Jesus in our speech. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one of the greatest things our words can do is praise you. For you are worthy of our praise and there is no greater use of words than to worship you with them. God, I pray that in everything that we say, in everything that we do, we would be pleasing in your sight, that we would strive every day to focus our words on you, that before we speak, we would imagine you standing there with us. And we'd ask ourselves, is this something that I would say if Jesus was right here looking at me? That you are, you are the potter and we are the clay. Mold our lives, mold our words, mold everything about us that we might be examples of you and bring glory to you. And may we leave here today with a desire and drive to show the world the joy and the grace of who you are, that every day we might speak more and be more like Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.